Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the opportunity we have tonight to dig into the Word. I pray that we'd be reminded that um, this Word that we read is, is breathed out by you and profitable for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped and competent for any good work you call us to. So without this Word, we're not readied. Uh, without this Word, we... Um, we're ill-equipped. So I pray that we would see this as breathed out from you and um, that we would respond rightly as we read through uh, what I would consider a, sort of a hard section of Scripture, uh, yet surprising. Um, Lord, I thank you um, for being great and greatly to be praised. Um, I feel like I say it over and over again, and it's because you remind me of it over and over again. Today, I've gotten to see you move in many, many, many different ways, and um, my perspective is so limited as to the greatness of who you are. Lord, even in my deepest meditations, my thoughts cannot go high enough to express your greatness. We're limited in our thinking Yet, you give us the opportunity and the privilege of seeing things in part now that we will see completely in eternity. So these matters that we look at in, in Exodus from many years ago are actually things that are equipping us for eternity and equipping us for right now. And so I pray that you would allow us to have insight, understanding, um, and wisdom that if not for the work of the Spirit giving us understanding, we would not have it. Lord, I pray for um, focus tonight as we are going to, um, in a sense, barrel through a lot of things. Uh, I pray that we would not be distracted. I pray that um, knowing that there are individuals here who have come straight from work, uh, potentially from very difficult days at work, maybe a lighter day, maybe some are more relaxed, maybe some are completely distracted, uh, maybe even... Some here have been home all day with kids and feel like they're about to lose their mind. Whatever the circumstance, you are God. Uh, you know our deepest needs before we voice them. Uh, you care for us like a, a shepherd who's perfect in every way. Uh, so we humble ourselves before you. We ask for insight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read aloud Exodus 20, 22 through 21. Uh, it says 6. 2136 is what that's supposed to say. And we're climbing back into the Exodus story here. We're at the base of Mount Sinai. Israel, uh, the nation of Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They will be at the base of Mount Sinai for the better part of a year. And we will likely be at the base of Mount Sinai with them for the better part of a year in this study. Um, I know that this sounds bizarre, but I, I've been... I've been sort of almost dreading these verses after the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are such a big deal, and then you have these verses after that seem very difficult, and it's laws about altars and restitution and slaves and marriage and oxes and um, donkeys and, and other things that just seem so disconnected from where we are now when the Ten Commandments obviously seem to speak very much to where we are now. And... Uh, as I said, I know it sounds bizarre, but after looking at chapter 21, I feel like we could spend a month in Exodus 21 and still not even come close to plumbing the depths of it. So there's a reminder for us as we begin our study tonight 
that no matter how deep, how deep we dig, this goes deeper. Um, no matter how much time we spend on it, there's more to learn, more to glean. And so I'm going to read through this large chunk of Scripture, um, and I want you to climb in and just consider the setting. The setting is that God is saying to his people how he wants them to live. So don't look at this, and I, I guarantee at some point you're going to hear a law, and you're going to say, oh, how am I supposed to do that? That's not the point here. The point is not for me to read a bunch of laws and for you to say, how am I supposed to do that? The point, to take this big picture perspective and see that God is showing his people how they are to live. So we'll come back to that. I'm going to read through the text. Exodus 20, verse 22. Moses has just walked into the thick darkness where God is. And it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven, and you shall not make gods of silver to be with me. Nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me. And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. It's huge. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you will profane it. You profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is God saying to Moses, Moses, you're to set these rules before the people of Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single... He shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the, door, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter." If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee." But if a man willfully attacks another man to kill him by cunning, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. Whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. When men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and the man does not die but takes to his bed, 
Then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of time and shall have him thoroughly healed. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. When man... When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined, as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe." When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned. And its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But... If the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past, and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall be put to death. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to his same rule, to this same rule. If the ox gores a slave, Male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. When a man opens a pit, or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it, and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. When one man's ox butts another's, so that it dies, then they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share." Or if it is known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it in, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. We all clear? Do we get that? Um, We have to be really careful here because when I read that, to be honest with you, I just think, wow, this is just all over the place. But if you're not careful, you're saying, God's foolish? God's communicating poorly? Of course that's not the case. So we have to really soberly look at what is being said here. And I think we'll all be surprised by the time it's over. There are some deep, wonderful, rich truths in these verses. Uh, You might be wondering how, but I think we have to dig. Um, Last week, we ended our time with Moses, once timid, now bold, walking into the thick darkness, likely wearing a duster to meet with God. So this week, we're seeing that it is... Um, what we're going to see is what God's communicating in the thick darkness. And the first things he, that he talks about is, is altars. So we've got to dig deep. Look at verse 22 in chapter 20. Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods or silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. Why does God warn against gods of silver and gods of gold? Time in. Just think through it. Throw things out. We will get there. It's idolatry. He's a jealous God. Now, how is it idolatry? 
Yes. Yes. Um, say that again? Yeah, for numbers one and two. Yeah, it violates numbers one and two commandments. Um, what reason? He, he actually gives a reason in the first verse for why he doesn't want them to make. He says, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me. So they would, in some sense, be making gods of silver to try to say that, well, when I got this, I'm with God, or I need this to, to be with God. It'd be like saying, in order to talk to God, I have to go to the church building. You, you in some sense, you would make an, an idol of the church building itself. And the reason that he gives is in, the, in the verse before is that he talks with them from heaven. He reminds them, I have addressed you from where I am. So you don't need uh, idols. You don't need trinkets. You don't need even something symbolic to make sure that I'm with you and you're with me. And he, and he reiterates that by saying, remember, I have called down to you from heaven. I've, I've spoken to you from the, the throne where, where I'm seated. There is no need of gods. Um, you are hearing from the one true God in heaven. And look at verse 24. It says, an altar of earth you shall make for me and a sacrifice on it. Uh, your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Now, question is, why do you think it's an altar of earth? Yeah, earth is something that God has made. You, you can't, you, you're not going to improve upon it. What'd you say? Yeah, it doesn't become a thing. We have... Ten piles of earth out here that nobody cares about right now. And I'm hoping at some point someone cares about them, but they've been there for months, and they're just piles of earth. No one really cares about them. Now, what's going on here, the altar of earth, um, the creator makes the earth. Um, that altar is pure. Um, it can be made where it's needed. Um, you don't need a particular person with a particular gift, with a particular um, substance or material to make a particular altar that you would need to particularly worship God. So he's saying make an altar of earth. And um, my next question is, why are offerings being brought? We're slowly climbing in at this point. We're about to dive in. Why, why are offerings being brought? Why would a worshiper of God bring an offering? Say that again? They're sinners. So this is interesting. Sin. This is huge. There was no altar in the Garden of Eden. Why? There was no sin. Okay, we're climbing in more quickly. There was no need for atonement of sin. And there's no need of expiation of sin. The altar did not exist in the Garden of Eden. So God has said, these are my Ten Commandments. This is the expectation that I have for my people. This is hugely important. And he's not going to diminish it at all. Yet he provides an altar right after providing the Ten Commandments. So this is where we need to zoom back. I want us to zoom back together. We're going to zoom back and take a, a, see the bigger picture, take sort of a bird's eye view, and we'll come back to the altar thing in just a minute. Consider from this bird's eye view, God is addressing a people who have never governed themselves. God is addressing a people who have never governed themselves. All living Israelites have spent the entirety of their lives in slavery to this point. Bitter slavery. Before they come to Sinai, Moses catches up with Jethro. Who is Jethro? Say that again. His redneck father-in-law particularly, but father-in-law works. His name is Jethro. Um, so he catches up with Jethro, and what does Jethro tell him? What does Jethro observe, and then what does Jethro offer? 
Yeah, we couldn't do what alone particularly? Yeah, Jethro's watching. Moses grabs a seat and sits and just keeps judging. I mean, how many people are we talking about particularly? A few mil. Okay. And Moses is saying, okay, now what did y'all, okay. So you tripped and you hit him and they dropped the vessel and it broke. Okay. I think, and he's judging, and it's like that times a bunch of different people. And Jethro says, uh, you're going to wear yourself out. This is foolish. And so Jethro gives him some order. And what do they put in place because of the wisdom of Jethro? Great band name, by the way, wisdom of Jethro. What do they put in place? Judges. Yes, that's needed. And we'll come back to that in a second. So Moses catches up with Jethro, his wise father-in-law. And the result is that Israel now has some structure Structure's not a bad thing. Israel has a system. A system's not a bad thing, particularly of judges, so that they might deal with discrepancies as they will inevitably come up with this recently freed few million people in this desert terrain. So rather than getting wrapped up with the details of these laws, I want you to first see a big picture of God saying, my people, I've brought you out of slavery for a reason. My people, I have set you apart. You are to be different. This is how you are to live as a freed people who belong entirely to me. And consider the order that he addresses. I just read through all that. What does God address first after he shares the commandments? Their relationship with who? Him. This is important. And then their relationship with who? Say that again. Each other. And then there's even another thing that he addresses later on in the next chapter, which is other people who are outside of the Israelite people. So God addresses them saying, first, we're going to talk about your relationship with me, and then we're going to talk about your relationship with each other, and then we're going to talk about your relationship with those outside of my people. This is the same order that you must consider if you truly wish to live according to God's will. What I think we can glean from this passage, um, there's an ESV note that says, Israel's relationship with the Lord is her first priority as it should be with you. A lot of times we have relationship problems and we work on a thousand different directions and dynamics. And if I say this or or I felt this way and I don't, you know, I felt this way. And you can talk through all your feelings all day long, but you never bring God into it. And that's, that's wrong. Your relationship with your Lord should be your first priority if you're a child of God. And that, um, it was with us, it is with us as it was with Israel, that our relationship with God will govern all of our other relationships. So your relationship with God should affect your other relationships. Now, that's one of the major ways that Christians get a really bad rap is because you don't let your relationship with God affect your other relationships. I love Jesus, but I'm going to be a total jerk to you. I love Jesus, but I'm going to treat the waiter like a piece of trash. I love Jesus, but when it comes to conflict, I'm always right. Don't question me. We have to let our relationship with God affect our other relationships. And if we want our other relationships to be in right order in our marriages, with our children, with our friends, with strangers, we have to first look at our relationship with the Lord. Now, we're going to get back to the point about altars. We zoomed out. Now we're going to zoom back in. God is addressing their worship. This is, there's a question that we ask, like if we talk to some of our guys on the field that we haven't talked to in a while, one of the first questions that comes up is, how's your worship? And what we mean by that is, How's your walk with the Lord going? Because that's going to inform all the other details and dynamics of uh, your business and your ministry. How's your worship? God is addressing their worship. And after giving his law, he provides an altar. I want us to see this is such grace. This is really sweet. 
God provides an altar, and this is such an expression of grace. A.W. Pink notes this. This is really smart, so listen to it. It was man's sin which made necessary an altar, and it was divine grace which provided one. He goes on to say, It is therefore abundantly clear that the Ten Commandments were never given to men or to Israel as a means of salvation. This is a pretty big point. There are some who mistakenly say that the Old Testament was all about the law and salvation was to be sought through the law and, and it was just no one could ever do it and it was sort of just a depressing mess. But then, way later, Jesus brought in grace. Jesus introduced grace and so now we're under grace and so luckily the law doesn't matter anymore and we're under grace. That, that is very, very backwards. We had some sermons a few months ago that really addressed that. And what we found through looking at this a little more I think fully and, and um, handling it with a little more responsibility um, and wisdom is that we see that grace leads us to the law. Because if salvation was ever, if you, you can't say, well, Israel was supposed to seek salvation through the law. They were supposed to please God and God would find them righteous as long as they obeyed the law, but no one ever really did. So it was just a 1500 year nightmare. It's not what it was because God provided the altar right after he gave the law shows that he never intended the law to be the means by which they would achieve their salvation. The altar itself is a beautiful form of grace because you're going to bring the sacrifices there. It's also a form of rejoicing because the peace offerings were something that were um, given during times of festival. And so this altar is beautiful. So we could just read through it and be like, okay, what's it care about an altar? Well, the altar is a sign of grace, and the altar is a sign of festival with your Lord. And it is um, so merciful and so loving that he would provide that. Man's sin is the reason for it, and his grace is what provided it. And it's, it's quite beautiful. Look at the promise in verse 24. What's the promise in verse 24? In every place where I cause my name to be remembered... I will come to you and bless you. Why is this significant? This at some point has been significant to everybody. Yeah? Yeah? Yes, yes. We, we, have you ever prayed that prayer where you're telling the Lord just, just what you would need for you to really be blessed? It's more like a Christmas list almost. And if I just have these things, I'll be blessed. And that's a good point. It's about his presence and, and his name. Why else is this significant or how else is this significant? Yeah, that's humbling. I can't even remember to call on the name of the Lord unless it's a work he's doing in me. So I've heard many testimonies that were like, everything was going bad and everything was going horrible. And then I remembered God. And it's as though you turn the tables on the circumstance to make it great. But what we really know happened there is God caused you to remember him. Where I cause my name to be remembered, I will be with you and I will bless you. His presence itself is a blessing, and he brings blessing when he is there in his presence. 
So we're a very blessed people when we're reminded to call on his name. So what does that have to do with dominion? Let's connect that to some of what we're looking at in Hebrews. There's some dominion connections there. What, what could God drawing near and blessing us when we call on his name, how, how does that connect to dominion realities from Hebrews? Yeah. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, there were people who were born into slavery in Egypt, had bitter slavery their whole life. Largely what they received from the hand of the Egyptians was wicked, oppressive, and horrible. And then they died. And now this freed, these freed you know, generations of, of Israelites are saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> there were many who cried out. There were many who cried out. And now God is saying, where I cause myself to be remembered, I'll be with you and I'll bless you. They got to see that happen, and now they're seeing it continue to happen as they're in the wilderness. That can happen at a school where I cause my name to be remembered. I will, I will come to you and I'll bless you. That can happen in a school, even, even a public school. I'm not sure about private schools, maybe. Um, it can happen in a courthouse. It can happen in your home. Where I cause my name to be remembered, I'll, I'll come to you and I'll bless you. It can happen when you're alone. It can happen when, when you're in a crowd. There should be comfort for God's people in that. And the dominion connections are where he is present. I mean, if you're somewhere and you say, okay, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. We need God here. God is needed here for us to move forward faithfully. You can know that there's blessing there. there. There's a dominion there that goes far beyond what you could accomplish on your own. Because when God's present, the way he blesses you is with his presence. And then he gives us wisdom in the spirit. Remember, this is breathed out by God and profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we could be competent and equipped. So in those circumstances, you call on him, he comes to you, he is near, he blesses you by largely, a lot of times, making you competent when you were totally incompetent or equipped when you were ill-equipped or unequipped. And so God's blessings are abundant. There's dominion in that. And he draws near and blesses us when he causes us to remember his name. Look at verse 25. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah. That's a really great point um, because perspective of the Christian is hugely important. I'm not saying if work's going bad, God causes you to remember his name. He comes to you, he blesses you by making work go good. That's not always how it happens. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, the perspe- that's where the perspective of the believer is informed by the way he teaches us to pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That doesn't just mean that you get whatever you want when you want. It may largely mean you have God when everything else is not what you want. And that is beyond sufficient for the moment. Because um, you are more blessed than if you had exactly what you asked for. Um, 
so that, that, that's a good point. I, I, I do not want to communicate that you just call on God and everything goes from bad to good, just like that. So good. Keep them good. Um, It's incredibly humbling. And in fact, just the sight of an altar should be humbling to the people of God. You look at that altar and think, I need that. I really need that. And I wouldn't have that if he didn't provide it. So there's, uh, there's humility in that. And there, there's perspective to be gained, an eternal perspective that, that Christ had that, that we're to have as well. Look at verse 25. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones or wield your tool on it to profane it. God's making the point that we don't bring anything to the table. Um, that may be an oversimplification, but this first altar post-Egyptian freedom um, is to be plainly from the provision of the Lord. God's making it known that they, they need him desperately and he provides abundantly. And look at verse 26. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is a humorous verse, at least to some extent. Um, there is a literal problem that if a man wearing a skirt climbs steps during corporate worship, it will undoubtedly be a distraction for other worshipers. We can all agree on that. If you do that, I'll have you arrested. The deeper meaning that goes beyond just the initial um, literal is that God wants us to see how foolish it is to think that we may ascend to him by our own steps. That's something that he's teaching us here. There's so much insight. If we peel back layers, we can see things here. And one of the things we see is that it is foolishness for us to think that we can build steps to ascend to God and be any closer because of our own steps. And in fact, um, God speaks down from heaven. Christ comes down from uh, to earth. And for us to think that we may ascend is to expose our shame. That, that's the other thing here is, yeah, the problem of seeing the nakedness of a man in worship, that, that's a problem, undoubtedly. But to ascend the steps and think that we can draw near to God by our own steps is to expose your shame accordingly. Um, look at verse uh, 21, verse 1 through 6. Now, there's just not even a way we're going to finish this whole chapter tonight. So these six verses we are going to dive into. There are rules that you shall set before them. These are the rules you set before them. God saying to Moses, you're to set these rules before the people. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. If he, come, if he comes in single, he'll go out single. If he comes in married, his wife will go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, she bears him sons or daughters. The wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. His master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever." This is one of the richest passages I've studied in a long time. It's, this, it's unbelievable. It's believable. It's not unbelievable. This is breathed out by God. I should not say it's unbelievable, but it's amazing. Okay. Why does or why could immediate talk about laws about slaves seem weird at this point? Yeah, that's awkward. Um, I'm going to tell you some laws about slaves. 
Oh, yeah, that may be weird because you were just slaves for 400 years and it's sort of a big deal that I brought you out of slavery. So this may seem weird. They were just freed. And Israel, um, like us, I believe, likely have some unsavory baggage when it comes to slavery. It's funny. We're, Israel and us are at the base of Mount Sinai for about a year, and I think Israel, as well as us, likely have some unsavory baggage in regards to slavery. We may think, okay, right off the bat, why is God okay with buying slaves? Why, why is that okay? So let's just shoot the elephant. What do you think about when I say the word slave? Yeah. 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 It would be, I mean, we could, surely God's more wise than Lincoln. I mean, the one who is full of justice frees slaves. That's what he does. Why is he talking about rules of buying slaves? It's, it's difficult. So what are some other things y'all think about when I say slaves? Yeah? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, you think you, like, didn't you just wipe out slavery? And now you're making your regulations on slavery. It, it's, it's confusing. What, particularly, what are words that come to mind when I say slavery? Words. The bad? Yeah. Serving? Dominion? What are the negative things that you think of when I... Injustice? What did you say over here? No pay? Property? Less than human? Oppression? Injustice? Um... A completely negative connotation given our context. Yeah. They call themselves slaves. Um, we could think of unfairness. We could think of racism. I mean, that's not hard to think about in Hunt County. Racism's rampant in Hunt County. Um, for this reason, um, I want to encourage you to think first in terms of servant. Chad was saying, God's not talking about what you're thinking about, and, and he's right. I want you to think in terms of servant first. And as you think in terms of servant, then call to mind that Christ is a servant. And I want to give you a hint that this entire section is about Christ. Mark Dever talks about how it does not first speak to the Christian unless it, does not, unless it doesn't first speak of Christ. And so this speaks to the Christian deeply. 
And I want us to try to, as best we can, shelve some of the negative stigma we have with the word slave because we're not talking about um, when God is talking about these rules, he's not talking about property. There's another list in regards to personal property, and it doesn't include people. God's not okay with that. So we're going to dig into this a little bit, and tonight I'm hoping we can see uh, in the next few minutes how rich this is in regards to our Savior. The Hebrew slave is a servant. This would most often be seen as a huge blessing, actually, in this context. If one could not provide for himself or his family, this would be the equivalent of a job opportunity in a suffering economy. That's what this context is. I'll bless you by letting you come and be my servant. It's a job opportunity. It's an opportunity for provision for self and provision potentially for family. So the context there is different from the context we've had in the previous however many decades, um, seeing um, what was a huge problem for a large part of our nation's history. Also remember, we're not that old. America is a baby compared to the rest of the world. And so we need not be arrogant about the way things are. We need to make sure we see this eternal perspective and, and see here that this would actually have been a blessing to a large extent. And look at the pattern. What's the pattern? Six years of service and freedom on the seventh year. Does that remind you all of anything? Yeah. Yeah, creation. Work and rest. This is creation. God is not intending to be subtle here. He's not being subtle. He's being very obvious. When it comes to servants, let them work for six years. Maybe they have a debt. Maybe they have a debt that they can't pay, so they need to, be, um, they need to serve. And he says, let them work for six years, and then on the seventh, they go free. And so God is not being subtle. He is saying that this work is to reflect his own movement as creator. So uh, look at verses 5 and 6. If, we, if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. This gives us some more perspective. If he says that, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door, or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. This is huge. Okay. This is a foreshadowing imagery that is completely about Christ. Turn over to Psalm 40. By the time this is done, I'm still the only one excited about it. I'm totally okay with that. So we're going to try. Psalm 40, verse 6. In part, this psalm is a prophetic psalm. Uh, Some of the psalms are more prophetic than others. This one is certainly prophetic in some of the verbiage that it uses to indicate um, the coming of Christ. Look at 40, verse 6. First, it's prophetic in regards to David, but largely the things that were prophetic in regards to David were really more about Jesus than they were about David. Does that make sense? Hopefully. Look at verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Or some of yours says, you ears you have dug for me, like with an awl on a doorpost. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. This is, in large part, alluding to Christ, of whom it is written in the scrolls. In Christ being pierced for our transgression, there is a biblical link to it being likened to the servant whose ear has been dug out or driven through 
marking him as eternally belonging to his master. Christ eternally belongs to his master. He is pierced and marked as such. And there's a connection in Psalm 40 here that the one whose ear is dug out or pierced or run through with the awl is likened to Christ who is pierced. Have we made that journey? Does anyone like, is anyone saying, "Uh -uh, I don't get that. If so, this is totally the time to say that. And you can. Okay. This is really cool. All right. Turn back to Exodus. And this may seem like a simple question. A slave says, I love my master, my wife, my children. I will not go free. Why would a slave do such a thing? Why would a slave or servant say such a thing or do such a thing? Yeah. There's a work done in his heart by God. Why else would a slave do or say such a thing? He loves his master. Why else? She's the greatness of his master. Why else? Say that again. No place better to go. Why? Yeah, he has a servant heart. Yeah. Why, uh, why else? There's lots here. Say that again. Yeah, there's a safety and security there. That he has provision, yet he is serving as his heart has led him. His master knows him. What else? Oh, this is Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yes. How has he blessed him? Oh, you're so on it. The master has blessed him. How? Yeah, he put his mark on him. And how else? Treated him more like family than slave. What'd you say? He cares for him and provides for him. And, and what does he have now that he didn't have before? A wife, otherwise known as a what? A bride. And what else? Children. So this servant loves his master, he loves his bride, and he loves his children so much that he's going to say the freedom is not worth what I would gain in it so that I might stay here. Now, say that again. Well, yeah. Yeah, a freedom and subjection. Chad, that doesn't make any sense. Even when it's written in here, it just seems hard to make sense. A freedom and that subjection. Look at what he says for this to happen. Look at verse 5. If the slave plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out from here. That's what he has to say. The servant desires to continue to serve, foregoing the fleeting pleasures of freedom because of love for God, love for bride, and love for children. And the result of this proclamation is that the master brings the servant to God and the doorpost. Now, what do you immediately think of when I say doorpost, hopefully? Leaving, okay. Blood on the doorpost, which was Passover. Okay, this is not an accident. This is not a coincidence. Like, oh, weird, doorpost in two areas. Yes. 
Yes, we need to catch that. Okay, um, doorpost, Passover imagery. The door is a symbol of limits. What does your doorpost limit? What is your doorpost limit? The door? Yes. And the door with the doorpost is meant to limit other things, of which are weather, bad people. What does it limit um, on the inside? Your own is the key point there. It can hide your nakedness. I didn't think of that, but that's a great point. Um, The door is is a symbol of limits, and within my doorframe, the people welcome there are my family and who my family welcomes. Those who I call my own. That's who's welcome in my in my doorframe, in my doorpost. If I come home and I find someone who's not my family or welcomed by my family in my doorpost, that's a problem, a big problem for them because they're in the wrong place. That's not good. So there's this picture here that within it is my family and those that my family welcomes. So you go to this doorpost and the master pierces the servant. Who pierced Jesus? Okay. So if you're walking through, and I see a bloody doorpost with little all marks in it, it was just through the ear, so there weren't like ears hanging from the doorpost, don't take it too far. But if I'm walking into someone's house during this time, someone, they have a doorpost at the place that they live, and I see all marks in that doorpost, and maybe some blood stains, what, do I, what can I tell from that house? A loving master... A faithful servant. I know that servant's heart. That's huge. The master pierces the servant. You consider God piercing his son. So these bloody doorposts were signs of happy servants and good masters. Hear Jesus saying, I have come to do the will of him who sent me. I've come to do the will of my father. Finally, we have what I see as the most amazing part. This is all about Jesus. And it closes with Jesus being a servant forever. This is about Jesus. It's a foreshadowing of Jesus. Think about it for a minute. What is the reason that we often, probably most times, give for our service? I will serve wherever there is a need. Yeah. We most often give the reason for our service as a need. Now, turn to Luke 12, 37, and please... Allow your mind to be blown. I mean, just, just explode. Luke 12, 37. So this law about slaves has much to do with Christ. And in Luke 12, actually, let's start in verse uh, 35. Jesus is teaching, and he's teaching about being ready for when he returns. And look at what he says. I mean, all right, verse 35, Luke 12. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast. It should be imagery that is familiar. So that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. And look at this verse. 
Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service, have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Who is sitting at the table? The servants. Who is serving? The master, particularly Jesus. Now, are we in his presence there? What can't dwell in his presence? Sin. This is huge. Christ serves forever. I may have considered that more fully today than I've ever considered it in my life. Christ serves forever, a servant forever. In Exodus, the ear is put through to show that he is a servant of the master forever. Here in Luke 12, he says, when I come back, y'all be ready, um, loins girded, ready to go, and I will make a table, and you will recline at that table, and I will serve you. That is absolutely massive that Christ serves forever, because that tells me some things about Jesus. If we're in the presence of Christ after the return, then we cannot be in such a place while still covered in sin. So Luke 12, 37, has seated at its table, redeemed and clean children of God, no longer dirty, no longer in need of being cleaned. When Jesus washed feet, he did it because the feet needed washing. When Jesus cleaned the sinners, we needed it because we were filthy in our sin. Here, it's not the case. If Jesus is a servant forever, then his service must be driven by something more than need. What is it? For who? And the bride and the children. Y'all see that? Jesus is a servant forever. For that to be true, it must be driven by more than need. It's driven by, it goes beyond serving of need. My original thought was, um, well then... Okay, I'm trying to think through this, and here we are without sin at a table, and Jesus is serving. My, my initial thought was, that, well, then Jesus will serve simply because he gets great joy out of it. But it goes bigger, it's bigger than that. He serves because he loves his master. He serves because he loves his bride. He serves because he loves his children. That is us. Try to wrap your head around that for a minute. There will be a time in heaven where you will be free from the sin of shame, I don't want anybody washing my feet right now. Awkward. I'm not worthy of that. Why would I do that? Why would I allow? I remember there was a service we had here one time, and Ben was really making a point, and they washed feet in the service, and he washed mine. And I thought, this is so awkward because there's a shame. There's sin. I'm like, I don't want anyone washing my feet. I know I'm dirty. I didn't even have time to wash my own feet so someone else could wash and get cleaned up, you know? There's shame in that. So there will be a time in heaven where you will be free from the sin of shame or the shame from sin. And in that freedom, you'll be served by Jesus. I'm not making light of Jesus. Jesus is a servant forever because he loves. In your freedom, free from shame, you'll be served by Jesus. Indeed, he is King of kings and Lord of lords, yet a servant forever. 
We cannot currently conceive of the joy that we will experience when free from shame and guilt and sin, we're served by God, yet in complete humble awe of his presence and eager to serve him for eternity. I just explained something we can't understand, but we can be in awe of and anticipate eagerly. Now take that reality and look at Philippians 2. That's the mind of Jesus. The mind of Jesus is I love my master, I love my bride, I love the children. I love God the Father, I love the church, and I love the members of it. That's the mind of Jesus. A servant forever, Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. This is the mind we're supposed to have. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, When I talk about him being a servant in heaven, I'm not talking down on him. He is highly exalted by God, King of kings, Lord of lords, no one more powerful, and a servant forever. He has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We are to have the mind of the eternal servant who loves his master, his bride, and his children. So for a moment, consider how this affects you husbands. When is the last time you served your wife simply out of love for her as your bride, not because there was a particular need? When is the last time um, that your love for God expressed itself in such a manner, your love for your master? Everyone. When is the last time that you served someone when there was no perceived need, but because of love? When's the last time you served someone? Like it wasn't, I see a need, I want to serve. I see a need, I want to serve. That's good. But when's the last time you served someone when there was no perceived need, but because of love for your master, the bride, and his children? Consider how this affects mercy ministry and social justice. We serve because we love. We love because we are loved and served by the eternal servant, Jesus Christ. So we do not go and show the love of Christ in practical ways with hopes of a chance to one day share the gospel, but actually in the service we're sharing the gospel because we're showing the love of Christ, the love that he has for father, bride, and children. In the service itself, we are sharing the gospel. We are serving out of love. Yes, I want to explain that to the person clearly at some point. But the service itself is an expression of the gospel, if indeed is an expression of love. Deacons, consider how this informs your service. It is a great thing to be aware of the needs of the body, but it is also a great thing to simply serve because you love. I'm going to close with Matthew 20. You don't have to turn there. Just listen and we'll go right into prayer. Matthew 20, verses 26 through 28. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came 
not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Lord, I have lots of questions about this text. I think we could sit here and work through this and pick it apart and see a thousand other things and come up with a number of questions. And I pray that you would allow us to be diligent in asking whatever questions need to be asked of the text so that we can have greater understanding. But I pray that before that, we could enjoy the truth and the reality that Jesus Christ is a servant forever. Lord, that impacts us in a great way. I pray that it causes us to serve out of love. I pray that we wouldn't be totally dependent upon only deacons doing serving in the body, but that as members of one another and members of Christ, we would have such love for the bride and the children that we would serve out of love. I pray that we would be mindful of the needs, but not limited to the needs in regards to our service. Lord, this changes my perspective of eternity too. If Jesus can serve eternally in heaven, we can certainly serve eternally as servants of Christ. And there can be great joy in it. I pray that you would allow us to be a church that rightly exercises dominion, not wrongly, that humbly serves others out of love. I know that a big piece of that is that we have to learn how to love others um, more biblically, more fully, more robustly. I pray that expressions of love for those who are in Christ would not be rare. I pray that our expressions of love for each other, expressions of love experienced in Christian community and expressions of love experienced as a member of a Christian community to a non-believing community, I pray that those would not be few and far between and rare. When we see someone simply serving out of love for another, I pray that it wouldn't be an anomaly. Thank you for the altar in Exodus 21. Thank you for not having a plan that the law was meant to be our means of salvation. But that we could see what it means to covet. We could see what it means to lust. We could see what it means to be angry and to have pride. We can ultimately see what it means to sin, to be able to know that which we are to repent from as we eagerly follow you in obedience. I pray that texts like this would help us to humble ourselves before you that we'd be more eager to serve you and each other. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that we have any right to come before you in prayer. We know that's only in Christ and by his name. As we let these requests be made known, I pray for peace that exceeds understanding. I pray for encouragement and truth. And I pray for steadfastness and earnestness and perseverance as we serve and love and obey. Pray you would bless this people as you have caused us to remember you tonight. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.